The dream that is particularly American is not the European dream for America, lived out in the first two centuries of European settlement, but rather the dream that emerges at the time of the American Revolution. The full articulation of that dream coincides with the birth of Richmond as the capital city of Virginia. Richmond became capital of the Commonwealth in the midst of the Revolution. In May 1780, the legislature met in Richmond for the first time. In 1782, the city is incorporated within Henrico County. Over the next 25 years, the population of the capital city grew tenfold, from 600 to 6,000. Thus, in many ways, Richmond is a child city of the Revolution. The subsequent 235 years of Richmond's history represent a textbook in the dramatic, unresolved issues which the American Revolution presented. Today's speaker will look at the American dream of revolution, its dark underside, its achievements, and its unparalleled potential still to be realized in Richmond's most decisive decade. The Reverend Benjamin P. Campbell studied political science and political economy at Williams College and theology as a Rhodes Scholar at the Queens College at Oxford. He received a master's in divinity and an honorary doctorate in divinity from the Virginia Theological Seminary in Alexandria. He was ordained to the priesthood of the Episcopal Church in 1966. In 1987, he became pastoral director of Richmond Hill, an ecumenical Christian community and retreat center on Church Hill. He is co-founder of Metro Clergy for Rapid Transit and a director of RVA Rapid Transit, community efforts to provide comprehensive public transportation for metropolitan Richmond. He is also director of the Armstrong Priorities Freshman Academy, which supports the on-time graduation of students at Metropolitan Richmond's most challenged high school. He helped start the MICA Association, which links 130 faith communities to 26 inner-city elementary schools in Richmond and the Armstrong High School Leadership Program. He's a member of the Richmond Public Schools Educational Foundation and the Richmond Slave Trail Commission. And most specifically here today, he is the author of, among other books, Richmond's Unhealed History. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Ben Campbell. So most of the places I speak, I, I usually get to start with a prayer, so I'll just do that for myself. Um, I did learn something really interesting today um, about my own um, heritage. How many of y'all went to WNL? Anybody go to WNL? I understand there's a statue of George Washington up on top of the colonnade, right? Well, it turns out that my great-grandfather, who was a professor of geology there during the war, y'all know what the war is, right? It turns out, turns out that my great-grandfather, whose name was John Lyle Campbell, is said to have gone out when the Yankees were attacking Lexington in Hunter's Raid and said to the commander that he shouldn't destroy the colonnade of WNL like they'd just done to VMI um, because that was General Washington up on top. And the Yankee didn't destroy the colonnade. So there you are, my geology professor ancestor, 
save the colonnaded WNL. I like that. <laughs> Thanks. Good story. Good story yeah. Richmond became the capital of Virginia in 1780 and was incorporated in 1782. It is, in a sense, the child city of the American Revolution. Now, the American Revolution enclosed within itself one major deeply disturbing contradiction. It proclaimed equality and liberty for every human being in words and actions that went around the world, but it also firmly established a system of race-based segregation and enslavement for half the population of Virginia. Liberty was stated publicly as a goal, enslavement was established firmly as a practice. The contradictory pattern of this revolution is the shape of Virginia, perhaps from its beginning in Jamestown. The pattern is the template for much of what has happened in Richmond since 1782 to a large extent, and how much we have to explore today, Metropolitan Richmond still follows this pattern in 2016. Virginia history, which was authorized and taught for two centuries by the General Assembly in schools and universities of the Commonwealth, authorized and taught by the free half of the population, has largely ignored the unfinished half of the revolution which our conflicted forefathers bequeathed to us. And therefore, the problems and the situations of those beyond the wall of privilege in metropolitan Richmond are viewed publicly as anomalies or unfortunate defects in an otherwise successful revolutionary city rather than the predictable result of the original design. In Richmond, the crazy imbalance of the original design continues to play out with destructive consequences. One of the world's 500 largest cities, Richmond is governmentally and economically fragmented. Four different jurisdictions compete for location of businesses and location of the poor, leaving the highest tax burden on the poorest part of the city. The state and federal government has spent over $1 billion in the last two decades on new highways pulling the city outward and drawing commerce from the center. Metropolitan Richmond's urban sprawl is in the top 1% of the world's 500 cities. The central city has virtually exhausted its bonding capacity and has $600 million in deferred capital costs for education alone. Poor children in the inner city are jammed into racially and economically segregated schools which cannot possibly lift them out of poverty without either social integration or major increases in staffing and expenditure. The jail is jammed with persons who have no chance of employment when they have served their term. And the wealthy but fragmented metropolitan city cannot even manage a public transportation system to get citizens to work and job training. Now, it would be easy and accurate to say that 
Issues of this sort afflict many American cities. But three things are unique about the issues of metropolitan Richmond. First, we can trace them year by year from their origin through decades and centuries, even back to Jamestown. Second, in almost every case, Metropolitan Richmond has the full resources needed to address these issues effectively. All that is missing is the political and social will. And third, Richmond once aspired and may still desire to exemplify the original greatness of the world's greatest nation based on the principle of liberty and justice for all. The dysfunction of metropolitan Richmond surely belies the intentions of its citizens today. Historical attitudes of racism and class warfare have diminished. Education levels have grown. Power has been diffused. We might fulfill our destiny, but there are powerful unconscious forces, it seems, which create havoc and decisively inhibit healthy consensus. These forces are masked by the repetition of a false historical narrative that describes Richmond to have been founded on a revolution which established equality and liberty for all. It was not. The principles were proclaimed as if for all, but intended for only half the population. At the same time, pervasive political, legal, and economic structures were erected, which decisively prohibited both liberty and equality to the other half. Now, the hypothesis I'm exploring is this, and I invite you to do this as well. These discriminatory structures passed into the unconscious reality of Virginians so that they seem normal, even while no one will consciously advocate for them, their shape and spirit remain in place and will stay in place until identified and consciously dismantled. Moreover, the shame and the guilt, the passivity and the rage and the collective helplessness before evil, which these hypocritical structures created, continues to paralyze our population even after the structures are gone. Richmond is trapped in a stew of hereditary hypocrisy. It systematically denies half its history. Now there are measures for the magnitude of this denial. I know the modern word's metrics, but I couldn't put that in there. There are measures for the, for the magnitude of this denial. I have a copy at home of the fourth grade textbook approved by the State Department of Education required to be used for the foundational teaching on social studies by every child in Virginia as late as 1965. Now, you know, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you were in fourth grade in 1965. <laughs> mm. This means that it was the basic teaching for any Virginian who is 60 years old today, and for many who are younger. Out of 180 pages of social studies text, the book refers to black Virginians on only three. It's 1 60th. It's less than 2%. 2% 2 
two of those pages refer to the benevolence of, of slavery at the time of the Civil War. And the other mentions Booker T. Washington. There is no mention of the enslavement of half the population following the revolution, no mention of torture or violence, no mention of Gabriel's attempted revolution, no mention of the extensive system of racial segregation established following the Civil War, and of course, no mention of Jim Crow or the Civil Rights Movement. How is this possible? What is more essential knowledge for Virginians? The most stunning measure of Metropolitan Richmond's denial of its history is the hiddenness for more than a century of Richmond's central role in the downriver slave trade. This human trafficking involved from 300 to 500,000 persons of African descent who were sold from Richmond's Saco Bottom between 1830 and 1860. At its peak, the trade itself represented more than $100 million in current money per year in gross revenue, not counting the economic activity of the related industries and shops surrounding the market. The sale of persons occupied 30 blocks at the center of town, at the foot of the Capitol, surrounded by churches and synagogues. It accounted for 50% of the economy of a city of barely 40,000 people. It was certainly a major factor, both in Virginia's entry into the war and in the complete silencing of opposition to slavery in Richmond in the 20 years leading up to the war. How did this deep and long-lasting economic history escape the attention of Richmond historians for more than 120 years. It is strange, a city that is considered one of the most history-minded places in the nation is actually hiding from its own history. The true history of Virginia and of Richmond, its capital city went underground in the collective psyche, over and over again, regardless of the stated developments in legislation and policy, these destructive patterns reassert themselves, subverting the revolution itself. <clears throat> now, my book, Richmond's Unhealed History, and, and uh, it's available in the lobby, <laughs> simply tells this history of Richmond and Virginia for 500 years, allowing the reader to discern these patterns if they indeed exist for himself or herself. But in today's lecture, I'm going to identify several of the most significant patterns which I believe act to subvert the intentions of the American Revolution in its own city of Richmond. The most important of these patterns is the compact of white privilege. So I'll describe the development of this pattern in detail, and then I'll briefly identify a couple of other patterns in capital formation, dual education, and the disposal of surplus labor. White privilege. At the Beginning, at its beginning in 1607, life on Powhatan's River was not in any way a satisfactory compact for English settlers. They were used without warning by the public-private partnership of the London Company as an invading army in a foreign country. 900 of the first 1,000 English settlers died in the first three years. When Captain John Smith came to the falls of the James in 1608, attempting to buy one of Powhatan's villages, what she called Nonsuch Place, for a permanent settlement, 
He actually traded a young Englishman, Henry Spellman, to pay for the vi village. You, if you want fun, read some of Henry Spellman's later comments on that. <laughs> Three years later, when Sir Thomas Dale, for whom we named a high school, attempted to move the main settlement to a high bluff called Henrico, nine miles below the falls, Dale tortured and killed any settlers who failed to obey his martial law. Most settlers had no rights. Life for the majority of English settlers was miserable and deadly, not only because of the opposition of the Native Americans, but also because of the tyranny of their own countrymen. By 1620, Virginia tobacco had become so valuable in London that thousands of unemployed, misdemeanant, or credulous men were being shoveled off the streets of London and shipped in bondage to the Virginia tobacco fields. The king gave 50 acres of land to anyone who would import such a servant. The importing landowner then earned a 700% return in the first year. And if the man survived, a 1,500% profit in the second year on the bonded laborer. Of course, 50% of the imported laborers died in their first year. The white servants, as they were called, were slaves in everything but name. They could be bought and sold, and before 1660, very few lived out their indenture of seven or more years. Virginia was ruled by the crown. In 1619, the House of Burgesses came into existence. It was to Virginia what Magna Carta had been to England. It gave to a few of the so-called great men, the wealthy plantation owners who had acquired vast tracts of land in Tidewater counties and controlled hundreds of servants. It gave these few the ability to share some power with the king's governor. <coughs> Excuse me. There were a number of attempted revolts by white servants in the first 50 years. None of them were successful. By 1660, some of the servants had managed to live out their indentures, and poor independent farmers were finding their way to the frontier. This was the frontier. In 1676, Nathaniel Bacon, who'd acquired land on Curl's Neck, just below Richmond, and on Bacon's Quarter Branch, near Richmond's Gilpin Court, gathered men to fight the Susquehannock Indians across from Westmoreland County on the Potomac. And as Bacon's armed rebellion grew, it turned against Governor Barclay. Y'all can practice that. That's spelled Berkeley, pronounced Barclay. <laughs> Bacon burned James, there are a lot of other names like that in Richmond, but we'll not go through that right now. Bacon burned Jamestown, chased the governor to the eastern shore. Mercurial in temperament and chronically unhealthy, Bacon died of the bloody flux. British warships finally subdued the rebellion at West Point on the York River. The army that surrendered was composed of about 800 bonded men and tenant farmers. And the army was half black and half white. At the time of Bacon's rebellion, 1676, there were 8,000 bonded servants in Virginia, 6,000 of whom were of European heritage and 2,000 of African ancestry. Now the threat of an interracial class-based rebellion was not lost on the governor or the great men. Over the next 29 years, the House of Burgesses assembled what became the most important social charter of colonial Virginia the Virginia Slave Codes, 
which were compiled and completed in 1705. These codes established Virginia's policy of white privilege. The codes assumed that the population of Virginia would include a large number of persons in bonded servitude, but they carefully distinguished between white servants and Negro slaves. The word white was invented for the code, used for persons of European heritage where the word Christian had formerly been used. We had trouble with black people getting baptized. It messed up the word. <laughs> the racial distinctions in the slave codes were not primarily economic. They were social distinctions, which were clearly intended to privilege white servants over the Negro, Muslim, and other bondsmen working beside them in the fields. If a Negro and a white servant got into a fight, only the white servant's testimony was accepted in court. The Negro was subject to whipping. The child of a Negro slave was automatically enslaved. In contrast, the codes established physical protection for white servants. Here's a quote. All masters and owners of servants shall find and provide for their servants. Now, servant, you know, means white. All masters and owners of servants shall find and provide for their servants wholesome and competent diet, clothing, and lodging, and shall not at any time whip a Christian white servant naked without an order from a justice of the peace. If you want to read the codes, uh, they're on the web they're called the Statutes at Large. The editor is Henning, H-E-N-I-N-G. The whole thing's there, 1705. As as Theodore Allen has shown in his remarkable work, The Invention of the White Race, the Virginia slave codes were patterned on a colonial policy already developed for the British West Indies. By giving privileges to white servants and yeomen, the Crown established a compact of white privilege which created a buffer class who would fight on the side of the great men to keep black slaves in subjection. This compact of white privilege in the form of the Virginia Slave Codes became the charter for the economic growth of 18th century Virginia. At the beginning of the century, England took over Virginia's transatlantic slave trade from the Dutch, and Virginia's great men shifted their eyes to Africa now for free labor. During the 18th century, 114,000 captured Africans reached the shore of Virginia. In 1718, London also began exporting convicted felons to the fields of Virginia and Maryland. Y'all thought they all went to Georgia, right? <laughs> in 1718, London also began exporting convicted felons to the fields of Virginia and Maryland, and 40,000 of these persons were sold to planters for terms of seven to 15 years. Other European countries sent indentures and settlers to the Piedmont and the Valley. And in the 18th century, nearly 75% of the emigrants to Virginia were in some form of bondage. Virginia's transatlantic slave trade with Africa ended in 1774. And by that time, there were 300,000 white persons in Virginia and 300,000 of persons of African descent. The great men remained in charge, 
but they could not themselves fight a war. So the American Revolution was dependent on the compact of white privilege. Our official narratives of the American Revolution never mention this unspoken compact, but it clearly offset the concept of human equality and liberty so far as half the population was concerned. In 1780, meeting in Richmond, the General Assembly voted to reward every soldier who would fight in the Revolution with a bounty of 300 acres and, quote, a healthy, sound Negro. In Richmond, established in the last years of the Revolution, white privilege was seldom articulated, but always protected. A half century later, the thousands of poor white boys who charged the Union artillery and were massacred on Malvern Hill in 1862, urged forward by officer descendants of the great men, were fighting whether they knew it or not to retain that scrap of white privilege. The overt racial segregation policies and laws developed in great detail in the period from 1880 to 1958 in Virginia. These policies were affirmations of white privilege. The ascendancy of Harry Flood Byrd and his democratic machine to dominate Virginia politics in the 20th century was to guarantee white privilege. Byrd stood in the place of the great men, a direct descendant of William Byrd of Westover, whose plantation was on the James River east of here and who laid out the city of Richmond. The General Assembly of Virginia, when it could no longer guarantee white privilege by overt laws of racial segregation, secured white privilege for the next half century by forbidding annexation to the majority black city of Richmond. It firmly established in March 1871 a wall of racial and economic segregation in the metropolitan city, giving enormous economic advantages to the mostly white surrounding suburban counties. The compact of white privilege was intact. Let's say a word about capital formation now. Virginia's initial capitalization was based on free land and free labor. You know, if you can't make a profit with free land and free labor. <laughs> An investment from England through the London Company was combined with the land taken by force from Powhatan's people and labor compelled from enslaved workers. The pattern assumed that capital, with its opportunity for growth and accumulated wealth, would belong to one small group of people and that the great majority of people would live in a non-cash economy. In 17th century Virginia, labor was a capital asset. One owned one's laborers. A laborer was not only without capital or the ability to accumulate capital, his person was actually a part of someone else's capital. The Virginia Slave Codes revised this distinction, maintaining a virtually absolute wall between capital and labor, but moving it to accommodate the compact of white privilege. Whites who were not great landowners might still anticipate eventual ownership of property. But Negro slaves were themselves carefully defined as real 
property in the Virginia slave codes. The wall had moved. Half the population might hope eventually to acquire capital, but the other half was deliberately excluded. There was no abolitionist movement in Virginia. Laws even prohibited the importation of abolitionist pamphlets into the state. So much for free speech. Debates on ending slavery, when there was debate, focused on the impossibility of allowing hundreds of thousands of formerly moneyless persons to join the economy. Freed African-American, African-Virginian slaves were required to leave the state within 12 months. The only anti-slavery movement in Virginia focused on colonization of former enslaved Virginians into Liberia. <coughs> in the 1830s, slave owners discovered through the rapid expansion of the cotton economy in the South that their slaves were now valuable sources of capital again. So selling them, homes were destroyed and settled men, women, and children were stolen from their communities, never to be heard from again. Now the pattern we're talking about here in Virginia is that a significant proportion of the population will never participate in the cash economy effectively and never be able securely to do its own capital formation. Black citizens established communities throughout Richmond in the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th. But in the mid 20th century, through a policy called urban renewal, the white controlled city government invaded or destroyed every major black neighborhood in Richmond. One third of the land was taken for roads, one third for industrial development, and one third used for dense public housing. And black investment, which had been growing bit by bit, was destroyed. Jackson Ward, where black investment and leadership had been concentrated since the 1880s, was torn apart by the building of the Richmond Petersburg Turnpike, now I-95. And that road, which had been rejected in two public referenda, was forced on the city by Virginia's General Assembly. It, deplaced one ten it displaced one-tenth of the black population, destroyed 18 blocks of housing, and cut the black community in half. And it is still stunning, and I recommend it to you, to realize that only four blocks north of the massive 80-foot deep trench cut by the road builders is a natural valley, still unoccupied, that could have carried the same roadway easily, inexpensively, and without destroying a single home. After 1970, the majority black center city of Richmond, representing only 5% of the metropolitan city, was left in such debt that it could not renew its capital fabric and its necessarily higher taxes and unavailability of new land provided a disincentive to further capital investment. By leaving the historic city's debt and expenses in the black district, the surrounding counties became low-tax enterprise zones. The state and federal governments built capital improvements to su spur suburban development, including a $1.1 billion circumferential highway. 
All of the subsidized housing remained in the central jurisdiction, the fourth highest concentration of public housing in the nation. Full service public transportation stopped suddenly at the borders of the central city. It is assumed that a significant portion of the population will never fully participate in the cash economy and never be able to do its own capital formation. Now, a word about dual education as a pattern in Virginia. Between the time of Virginia's first revolution and the Civil War, it was against the law to teach slaves to read. Some did, of course, and some white persons, including notably Stonewall Jackson, disobeyed that law. The prohibition was designed to inhibit rebellion and prevent economic advancement. This pattern we're describing is to assume that a significant portion of the population does not need to be educated or should not be educated beyond a certain level. Following the Civil War, white public education began and blacks in Virginia developed schools. Throughout the Jim Crow era, Richmond underfunded its segregated black schools. Black teachers received much lower salaries. Some black schools in Richmond were in session only four months a year. And Virginia was unwilling to provide higher or professional education to black persons. This policy lasted so long that Henry Marsh, the first African-American mayor of Richmond, and Doug Wilder, the first African-American governor of Virginia, were both sent out of state to go to Howard Law School because there was no law school in Virginia that would permit it. Virginia maintained racially segregated schools and fought so hard to maintain them that under massive resistance, Virginia was prepared to close all of its public schools of the Commonwealth in 1958, rather than to permit blacks and whites to go to school together. And when under federal court order, Virginia could no longer overtly maintain racial segregation, it developed a more modern and sophisticated policy of racial segregation, this time by political jurisdiction. So today, many of the schools of Richmond and other Virginia cities are more segregated by race than they were in 1970, and are now segregated by income as well. The state notoriously underfunds these schools and has threatened them with sanctions because they cannot produce the same test results as well-funded suburban schools whose students are the offspring of professional and college-educated parents. Finally, a note on the disposal of surplus labor as a pattern. Enslaved labor, once it was not needed in the economy, became a cost drag on capital. In the 1830s, as black population continued to grow and farming became increasingly difficult, it was judged advantageous to seize 300,000 persons in Virginia and sell them downriver, to dispose of them, and to send as many thousands as possible of those remaining to a West African American colony called Liberia. In the period following 1970, unemployment in the center city has reached as high as 40%, this is not you know, discussed by the newspapers in some neighborhoods. Our jails are full. 
The state makes little or no effort to help children graduate from high school, and there is no public transportation to 80% of the metropolitan city's jobs. And the pattern we're describing here is that a significant proportion of the population is considered to be unentitled and disposable. Now, how might it be different? Richmond's the child city of the American Revolution. Are these really the patterns that our ancestors intended? Are they accidental and inadvertent? Or are they a horrible violation of our ancestors' ideals? How might they be different? Now, as I said at the beginning of this lecture, the entire population of Virginia was inspired by the grand vision of the American Revolution. And this vision spread rapidly throughout the world. All men are created equal. Give me liberty or give me death. But from that beginning, there's been a hidden dark side to Virginia's participation in its own revolution played out dramatically in the capital city of metropolitan Richmond. The dark forces of discrimination with their rigid legislative walls between haves and have-nots subverted the vision. And even when it's no longer politically correct to push such policies overtly, they still seem to control by unconscious or subversive pattern the continued development of our metropolitan city. There are signs of hope. The walls of discrimination are still firm, but they're no longer coterminous with race. Jurisdictions in metropolitan Richmond are much more interracial than they were. Moreover, African Americans have successfully entered the capital owning class in increasing numbers, and this too blurs the lines. Once at the time of the first American Revolution, Virginians articulated the dream of the nation and its people. Many of the leaders lived in this new city of Richmond, and they led the nation in the formation of a single nation, even while the seeds of subversion were developing in the child city of their dreams. Right up to the siege of Fort Sumter, there was a convention meeting continually in Richmond. Virginians fought against the secession of this state and against the establishment of the Confederacy here, only eventually to have Richmond become the capital of the Confederacy and their state its chief battleground. But Virginians then surrendered the pursuit of their own ideals to the Yankees and the federal government and joined those who promoted discrimination and division. In 1861 and 1850, in 1956, Virginians made federal troops and the federal government insist on what had been our ideals of freedom and equality, and we defended the opposite. So my question is, is it too late? Can the people of this metropolitan city and of this Seminole Commonwealth 
reclaim the ideals of our ancestors, and once again lead the nation. Paradoxically, because of our delayed development, because of denial, metropolitan Richmond is still fairly intact, and it may be in a position to lead by example and be economically successful. Most people today don't believe in racial discrimination. Most people do not believe in abandoning the poor. Most people do believe in employment and education for all. This city lies geographically at the crossroads of one of America's greatest port systems and America's greatest north-south road, a position of great economic strength. Only its historic division holds it back, unconscious, repetitious, powerful. It reproduces itself in destructive patterns. Hypocrisy has drained our strength locking us in conflict, passivity, and denial. But the citizens of Metropolitan Richmond are not racist any longer, are they? Are we? Are we that passive? Are we the exhausted victims of a confusing and hypocritical past? Can we believe? Is it possible to hope that we can renew our efforts to change the future? Can we believe that we might take up the quest for liberty again and finally complete here in Richmond the revolution that our forebears proclaimed to the world? Question time, huh? Excuse us, Reverend. Thank you for uh, explaining uh, the gap between uh, our ideals and what's real and the patterns which led to that. But I would ask you to further comment on one of the unconscious patterns, and that is whether or not we people are hardwired to self-segregate. For example, uh, there's little that's more segregated than Sunday morning church services. So I just ask you to comment on that. Yeah, I used to wonder about um, you know Sunday Monday morning church services. Uh, my one of my good friends, um, John Coleman, used to describe the, the difficulty he had um, dealing with interracial church services. Um, he said that the white folks in the congregation expected the thing to start on time and end on time. <laughs> <laughs> and the black folks expected to have an event and he was given the challenge of having an event that started on time and ended on time. <laughs> um, I do think people self-segregate in many ways and always will, and uh, I don't think there's anything you know, necessarily wrong about that. However, the structure of our society has to be non-discriminatory. 
Um, and that's, that's different. Um, and that's quite different from what we do in Virginia, uh, which is to discriminate consciously and unconsciously um, between rich and poor and black and white. And um, that continues. Uh, it's just under the surface now. I like, I like, I mean, if I were black, I wouldn't want to go to a white church because it's a lot more fun. <laughs> um, and I really like my Episcopal church. Yeah. Very interesting lecture. Uh, but in the first uh, part of your uh, talk, and within the first paragraph or two, you set up a premise that I thought was rather interesting. The uh, premise that you set up was that uh, because of segregation, it was, there was some need for uh, the white people to uh, associate with the black. And it indicated to me that uh, that was, uh, well, I questioned that because I think that the, uh, they don't need us that much. They were very successful in uh, their, uh, at one time, in having businesses, which you pointed out yourself. The most famous, of course, was Maggie Walker. And then there were plenty of uh, pharmacists and owners of hardware. In other words, they were, had their own capital and had their own retail stores. And my suggestion is that uh, they are intelligent enough and uh, uh, vibrant enough to create their own economy and create their own livelihoods and live in the particular way that they would like to live. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think race, I don't think our primarily racial problem in America is about personal prejudice or social association. I think our primary racial problem has to do with political and economic structures which basically inhibit um, equality in terms of functioning. And it goes back to the fact that basically all the land in Virginia stolen from the Indians was distributed to all the white people by the time of the American Revolution. So we have a situation where capital was with one group uh, and there was tremendous discriminatory legislation and still is in Virginia today. I mean, I could just go down a list of it to you that still re remains in place. That, um, so I'm dealing with people who have no hope of a job if they graduate from high school because they can't get to it on a bus, because nobody seems to think in this city that public transportation is important. We're probably the only city of a million people in the world that does not have full service public transportation trans trans uh, going throughout its uh, metropolitan area. We cover only 5% of our territory with public transportation today, and 80% of our jobs are inaccessible. Now that's just plain discrimination. And it's based on race. Ask people in Chesterfield why they don't want the bus going down Midlothian Turnpike, and you get a pretty good answer from that. Mm -hmm. So those are the structural issues we're dealing with. Personal relationships, uh, whether black and white people can both be energetic and create businesses, you know, we both know the answer to that. Uh, yes, of course, we all can. And yes, of course, personal relationships have to be personal. Um, they can't be something forced on us. Yes, um, I have a question about the segregated schools in mm -hmm. Richmond that continue, where that concerns me a great deal. I would have expected that to be addressed more effectively by the number of African-American leaders that we have on our school board and on our city council. 
Can you address what are the forces that despite African-American leadership in the city we, that cause us to continue to have so much segregation in our school system? In Virginia, and, uh, and this is a, you know, let me recommend my book to you on this. <laughs> but um, in 1970 and 71, when it became clear that the schools would be integrated, the Virginia General Assembly, perceiving that the center city, that is this little thing they call Richmond City, which is a political anomaly in the middle of a 1,200 square mile city, <coughs> um, that, that Richmond City would never be able to expand its territory. And they perceived that the city was 70% black and becoming more so. So what they did was to create a barrier that said that the school system of Richmond City could only serve the people who lived in that city. There could be no integration across county and city lines. And then white people moved to the suburbs and the poor black folks were left in the city. Um, so with, with black middle class flight to the surrounding counties, um, what we've ended up with is an extremely concentrated, impoverished African-American population that given the existing laws, nobody can do anything about. And so in Armstrong High School, for example, which is 99.5% black, with a median household income of maybe $15,000 a year for the children. Um, we're dealing with children from six public housing projects. That's, that's a tremendous concentration of poverty um, and a tremendous con uh, racial concentration. And that's, that's how it's happened. And this, Richmond's not the only city in the country that's done this. We're the ones who ought to change it. Regarding you talk about public transportation, I moved here from Atlanta last year, and I couldn't believe there's no public transit to Short Pump Mall. So I took a bus called 19 Pemberton that runs like three times a day, morning and afternoon. I walked five miles to the mall. I didn't know how far out it was. Then I took a taxi back to Willowlawn from Short Pump, not counting the tip, it was $27. And I mean, Short Pump Mall, surely the area is a huge powerhouse, but. Uh, I believe one of the JRTC bus drivers told me they had tried bus service to the mall, but it just, there wasn't the patronage there. I don't know if that's true. Or if they didn't give it enough time. I met with the Henrico County manager on this topic yesterday morning, so I'm pretty fresh on it. Um, you know, I just came back from Mexico two weeks ago. I was in, um, around Lake Chapala and Jalisco State, you know, buses going back and forth everywhere all the time. There isn't a city in the world that does this. And it's an anomaly, and it deals with this crazy history. I mean, we are a, whether or not we still feel it, we are dealing with the horrible hostility and um, trauma that was surfaced again and generated in the period from 1956 to 1970, the time of massive resistance, which was a time of great, great racial tension in metropolitan Richmond. and. <clears throat> with a state that gives a county the right not to have public transportation. Um, so 5% of the metropolitan city, which is this little center thing called Richmond City, which is 62 square miles, 5% of the metropolitan city has a footprint of full service public transportation, and nobody else has to have it. Um, I think our populace is better than this. I think our people are better than this. I don't know any city in the world, and there are 500 cities that are a million uh, or more in the world, and we're 495th right now. I don't know any other city in the world, literally, 
that does not have public transportation as a normal thing on its major highways. Route 1, Route 250, Route 60, Route 360 from the center to the beltway. So how to help that happen, all I can say is the people have to tell their politicians because the politicians are stuck. On the, uh, on the case of what might have been, the Richmond School Consolidation case in 1970 ordered a complete metropolitan school system. It was at a time when Henrico and Chesterfield, 90% of what they did was run a school system. They didn't yet have a full provision of services for their population. It goes to the Supreme Court where a 4-4 vote does away with the consolidated school system. There are those who say on the what might have been subject that had a consolidated school system been done at that time, then a consolidated regional government would have followed. In 1960, he's talking, this is the, the school consolidation case in 1970, um, which was rejected by the Supreme Court on a 4-4 vote because Justice Powell, who was a, had been on the Richmond School Board, had to recuse himself, although he probably would have voted against it, is my guess, but anyway. <laughs> Um, in 1960s, Charlotte and Richmond were the same size. Uh, watch the Super Bowl on Sunday. <laughs> I don't think you'll see a Richmond team in the Super Bowl, but what happened in 1970 was that Charlotte and Mecklenburg County consolidated their school system. So. It doesn't mean that Charlotte's a perfect place. I don't think it is. I like Richmond, but um, they got rid of the of the structural fight over race and started having the racial questions in terms of their own policies within the environment. Uh, we're still stuck in a structural fight, and we've been in it. Um, I mean, this is the Balkans as far as our politics is concerned. We're still in it. Um. I lived in Richmond for a long time, and I'd like to get back to transportation. I know about the burger buses, and I know about the maids bus. And what has puzzled me, but not really, is why is it that the maids bus that takes the black population of domestic workers to uh, out the West Hampton route doesn't bring the white businessmen back into the central city in the morning. Why is it that they don't take that bus back to work? Why do they drive their cars and have to struggle with parking downtown? Let me just say a word about public transportation in terms of thinking about it. You know, um, how, many of y'all probably know about the building of Route 288, which the, the state completely took all of its transportation money and built this enormous road from beyond short pump over into Chesterfield um, and built a bridge to do it. Um, Chester, that, that road was, there was nothing there and it still has nobody on it about 16 hours out of the 24 hour day. Um, places that do public transportation create simple effective routes that then build development around them so that people begin to plan their lives around them, um, so that uh, employment centers on them. 
Um, that's why, um, you know, and, and that's good public transportation. That when you try to do incremental public transportation, which is, uh, you know, go out to um, four miles beyond Willow Lawn and see how many people think, say they'll ride a bus to work there tomorrow, um, you never get anywhere. And you have these weird little bus routes that kind of do these strange things and make no sense. And um, I'm a, a native of Arlington, although my folks came to Rockbridge County in 1760. Um, but my dad ended up in Arlington. And um, you know, I was there when they built the Orange Line. Anybody know the Orange Line? Well, the Orange Line basically completely changed. Um, the economic state of uh, of Arlington because of it. Um, so think about healthy public transportation. Um, a lot of what's in Richmond today was built on healthy transportation. Remember, we had the first streetcar system in the world. Um, but like my friend Garrett Epps used to say about democracy, Virginians were so proud that they'd invented democracy, they felt they didn't need to have anything more to do with it. <laughs> 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 we're, we're at one o'clock, so please join me in thanking Bingo. Mm -hmm.